Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. All righty. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Good deal. All right. Well, as you know, we are working our way through the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be there for a while. We're going verse by verse through Luke, and then we'll go into Acts. So we're going to be with Dr. Luke for a while. So settle in. And so if you want to open your Bibles, your apps to Luke 1, 39, that's where we'll be going in just a minute. But before we get there, um, I, I don't know how many of you know, I, I do a podcast with my son, and um, it's all about movies. And it's really cool. The really cool thing about it is this. You know, for me to recommend a movie for him to watch that I saw when I was a kid and he's never seen, and then to hear his reaction, you know, that, that first reaction of seeing something you know is really good, and that person hasn't been exposed to yet, and then they see it, and just to see the look on their face, hear their voice, it's really, really cool. Because like, I remember when he was, he was little, He's not little anymore. He's over six feet tall now, but he was, he was little once. And, and I wanted to show him Star Wars. And, you know, so I waited as long as I could. I thought, four's okay, you know. And so at four, you know, I showed him Star Wars. And I remember the first time, and he was sitting next to me. And so, you know, if you know that Star Wars, if you don't, repent. Um, and so there's that opening crawl, right? And he's, he's looking at me like, is this another one of our reading lessons, Dad? And so I start just kind of paraphrase it for him, and we go through that, and he's like, okay. He's kind of looking at me like, what did Dad sign me up for? And then the spaceships show up, and then they start shooting at each other. And I looked over at my son. He went from, okay. That's really cool, right? I love that moment when you get to share something with, with somebody that you love and, and, and they don't know anything about. That's really cool. Now, it occurred to me a couple weeks ago that when I read the Bible, just read the Bible, just morning reading, part of the problem with is I've read through it so many times that the stories just aren't new to me at all. And so what I tend to do is I start to read and I was like, yeah, yeah, I know that story. Yeah, 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 David and Goliath. Yeah, 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 Jonah and the whale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just kind of skim. And the problem with that is then the Bible becomes kind of boring to you. And what I'm going to argue this morning is the Bible is never boring if you'll take your time and slow down and see what's really there. Because I guarantee you, if you do, You've missed something or a lot. And I think we're going to see that this morning with what I'm going to preach on, which is just a short section of Luke about Mary and, and, and Elizabeth. Now, just to remind you, because Dad preached on this um, last weekend, so that means you don't remember. Um, so, you know, in the opening of Luke, Luke says why he's writing. He's one of the two of the four gospel writers we have that says, this is why I'm writing. John says, so that you may believe. Uh, uh, Luke, writing to this guy named Theophilus, says, so that you may know for certain what you've already come to believe. And so uh, Luke opens this, and then 
you open up and you have Zechariah, the priest, and the angel Gabriel appears to him and says, you're going to have a son and he will be a prophet. He will be the prophet who will come before the Messiah. And Zechariah's like, uh, how's that going to happen? I'm old. And Gabriel, he get, Gabriel gets real ticked off and goes, you know what? You're, gonna, you're not going to be able to see, hear or talk until he's born. Just shut up. And then goes to see Mary. Now, I don't know if you know this or not about Jewish culture in the first century. In the Jewish culture in the first century was this. A young woman was typically betrothed to be married around the age of 12 and usually married at 13. Young men were typically betrothed, and it was a family arrangement kind of deal, around 15 and married at 16. Now, I know a lot of you sitting there going, gross. Okay, but consider a couple things. One, if you were living in first century Palestine, you were lucky to live to 40. That's one. Two, for those of you who have ever raised teenagers, can you see what Jews were thinking, saying, we better marry that boy off at 15? <laughs> Do you see what they were thinking? Maybe a little wisdom there, right? And so, they come in, and, and Mary is 12 years old, and, and, and the angel appears and says, you're going to be pregnant. In fact, as we're going to see in a second, what the angel is really saying is, you are now pregnant. And so when she goes, how can this be? She's not doubting God's word. She's saying, um, I'm a virgin. And what Gabriel says is, the spirit will come about shadow above you. That's the same language in Genesis when the spirit hovers above the waters to create the earth. It's an act of divine creation. And so Mary says, basically, so may it be. I am the Lord's servant. And that's where we pick up this week. And you remember Gabriel says, oh, by the way, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, she's going to have a baby too. That's where we pick up. Verse 39. Here we go. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. Now, when it says in Greek, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried. That means as soon as Gabriel left, she got up and left. She did not wait because she understood Gabriel was saying, you are now pregnant. Elizabeth's been pregnant for a while. And so she gets up and she just goes. Now, here's the amazing thing. She goes to Elizabeth's house, as we'll see in a minute. Do you know how far that was? Scholars estimate, because we don't know where in the Judea hillside it was, but it was at least 80, maybe 100-mile walk. Not a ride, a walk. Now, I'll give you a preview of my Christmas Eve service sermon so that you can get mad at me now. The pictures that you all see this time of year and greeting cards and all other kind of stuff where you've got Joseph leading a donkey or a camel and you got Mary up there, they could not have afforded a mule or a camel. Mary was walking. And so she walks 80 to 100 miles. That's a two or three day trip to get to Elizabeth. 
Why? Because they're the only two people that know this, that can talk. And she just wants to, she wants to be with somebody who knows she wants to celebrate. Verse 40. When she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth, and when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, this is John the Baptist, leaped in her womb. Now, when it says it leaped in her womb, in the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, that means like leap for joy or praise. John the Baptist is already doing his duty. He's praising Jesus in the womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, stop. Because of where we're at, I'm not putting it down. I love this place. I'm still here, right? But because of this, being filled with the Holy Spirit in a lot of places around here means all of a sudden you start dancing and jumping and speaking in tongues. When the Bible says that, that's not what it means. To be filled with the Spirit means God's presence has come within you and taken over you, and now you are God's vessel to speak or to do. So you go back in the Old Testament before David goes to battle. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Before a prophet tells Israel that they're screwing up, what are they? They're filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes upon them. And so Elizabeth is about to become a prophet. Because she's about to speak for God, filled with the Spirit. Now, I have to explain something else. When I say prophet, that also has some connotations that we need to clear up. Prophet does not mean your eyes roll back in your head and you start to tell predictions of the future. That's not what a prophet does. In fact, if you go to the Old Testament and you read from Isaiah to Malachi, how many of the prophecies concern the future? Less than 10%. More than 90% of what comes out of the mouths of Isaiah and Jeremiah and so forth is basically this. Israel, get your act together. God is saying get your act together or else. That's what a prophet does. A prophet either warns the people of God or serves to inform and build up the people of God. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Blessed in Greek, makarios, does not mean Lord's handing out cash. That's not what that means. Blessed means you are in divine favor. God is happy with you. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. And Elizabeth says, but why am I so favored? Now notice this. How could she know this except by the Spirit? That the mother of my Lord shall come to me. The Spirit has informed her. The baby Elizabeth in your womb will be a prophet, but the baby in her womb will be king. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy 
And blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Now, here's where things get a little different. Mary breaks out in song. Apparently that's a thing. It's not just a musical thing. I hate musicals, by the way, but, you know, if God's doing it, I guess I can't argue. Mary breaks out in song, and everybody remembers the first part of the song if they read it. Nobody remembers the second part, because that's where things, if you don't read carefully, they are not what you would expect from a 12-year-old girl who's just traveled a hundred miles after a visit from an angel. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. That means place up on a pedestal to worship. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That means I found happiness and joy in God. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Now, that word, the words there go, humble state and servant and the NIV. With all due respect, those are terrible translations. Everywhere the Greek words translated humble state, you find them in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, it just means this, dirt poor. That's what it means. For he has been mindful of the dirt, his dirt poor servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed and divine favor. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Now we've talked about this too. We've got to define terms. Holy. Holy means different, separate. There is no sin in God. There is no change in God. There is nothing in God finite or wrong. Everything in God is perfect. And his name, it's not just the name Yahweh or whatever. That's not what it means. At any time you see the name in the Bible, a name was tied up with that person's purpose and goal. The purpose of the Lord is holy. It means what God is going to do is perfect. And he's talking about what he's going to do through her son and the father's son. His mercy extends, notice this, to those who fear him. It does not say his mercy extends to everyone. His mercy extends to those who fear him, those who hold him in awe and tremble at his holiness. From generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. In Greek, really that should say those who hide their pride. In other words, hypocrites. Hypocrites. And we're going to see that in Luke. When he starts to tangle with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what does he say? You hypocrites. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but lifted up. Again, humble, but again, that means dirt poor. 
He has brought down rulers and lifted up the dirt poor. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Okay. Now, before you think it looks like Mary's talking like with a Rage Against the Machine shirt and a Bernie Sanders sticker, that's not what's going on here. Now, I'll talk more about this in a second, but that's not what Mary is saying. It's what's called anachronistic to think that you can apply a text from the ancient world to our context cleanly when there's big differences between our context and theirs. And so you need to keep that in mind. Okay? I'll come back to that. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months, and then she made the long trek home. She returned home. All right, what's going on there? First of all, as I said, I doubt that most of you, and I didn't do this the first two times I read through the Bible. First time I read through the Bible, I was 24 years old. I took a Bible my sister uh, Luann had given me. I blew the dust off of it. And I started in Genesis 1, 1, and I just started working through. And then the next year, Christmas, my parents gave me a Bible, a new Bible, so I opened that up, and I started reading through. Now, I can tell you, first two passes through this, I didn't pick this up. I didn't get it. I get the first part where Mary's going, praise be to God that he is, he's, he's remembered. He said that he would save us, his people. He has done it. Praise him that he does not just look upon the rich, he looks upon the heart of the servants. But then I forgot this whole thing where then little 12-year-old Mary goes, and he pulls down the rulers. And he sends away the rich. And he lifts up the dirt poor. What you talking about? Okay, first of all, you need to understand there is a big difference between the economy of ancient Rome, which Israel was a part of, and today. Back then, according to economic historians, only 3% of the people in the Roman Empire could be categorized as wealthy. 3%. Only 10% could be categorized as middle class. That means how many people are at or below the poverty line? I'll save you the math, 87%. Now, why is that? Because it was a thoroughly corrupt system. Um, yesterday morning, Saturday morning, my wife and I were sitting around talking about a book I've been reading, a history of the period between Malachi and Matthew a history of Israel from the time of the building of, of the temple or the wall in the second temple and the Maccabean revolt and the coming of Herod. And we were talking about that because we are a rockin' fun party kind of couple. 
And I was reading some of these passages to her, and she was going, you've, you've got to be kidding me. You, you've got to be kidding me. I cannot even count how many high priests were poisoned, knocked off, sent into exile. One priest had his ears cut off just to ensure because nobody with a defect could be a high priest. And they were all doing this. You know how they pulled it off? Even though at one point they're under the power of Alexander, and then at another point they're under the power of Alexander's successor, and then they're under the power of Rome. And all three of those empires decided we get to pick the high priest. You don't. And yet, why? So if these empires are going, we get to pick the high priest, why are all these high priests getting whacked left and right? It's like the temple version of the Sopranos. Don't act like you haven't seen it. Um, here's why. Here's how the, the priests, the people who wanted to be high priests, figured out how to get a high priest. Bribery. They found the right person to bribe. And that's how you got there. You want to know how Herod became king? He killed a lot of people. And Caesar Augustus said, man, oh man, that guy's so ruthless, we want him on our side. Tax collectors were corrupt. Rome gave very little salary to tax collectors because they just figured they'd take more than they needed anyway. It was a completely corrupt system. Now, on top of that, it's still 80-90% Jewish. And as we will see as we read through Luke, there are poor people everywhere. People laying on the streets, twisted and mangled and begging to eat. And yet, still at this time, Israel is under the Old Covenant. Now, do you remember what the Old Covenant teaches about how Israelites are to teach, treat fellow Israelites? There shall be no poor among you. And yet, everywhere there are poor Jewish people. So when Mary says, he will bring down the rich, what is she saying? There are rich people who claim to be the people of God within the boundary of Israel, and they're not taking a penny out of their pocket to feed or help one of their fellow Jews who are living on the street. And so Mary is saying, God's had it, and his wrath on that is coming. And when we get later on in Luke, Jesus makes this very clear. He tells his disciples here and in Mark and in Matthew. He said, you're going to see an army coming, and when you do, scatter to the hills. And he was talking about Rome coming in 66 A.D. By the way, this commandment for God's people to care for God's people continues. And we're going to see that here in a minute. There is a strand of Christianity out there that teaches a form of Christian socialism that is nowhere found in Scripture. What Scripture does teach is this. Paul says in Galatians 6.10, he says, Yet yeah, you should do good to everyone, but 
primarily care for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Within the church, especially here in the Western church, there should be no poor among us. Now, we have to be careful how we define poor. The late Jack Kemp, who I got to know uh, fairly well, taught me that our poor here in America are considered rich in Haiti. So we need to watch how we define those terms. But certainly there is no excuse that if you have a few extra dollars and someone is worshiping here with you and they can't get something to eat, shame on us. Right? That is what Mary is talking about. The ruling power then is corrupt. The wealthy are not dipping into their pockets and charitably giving to help their fellow people within the covenant. And God is angry. Now, you may not, you may have known that, you may not. You may have put that in context, you may have not. But you need to, to really understand the Bible. History matters. Context matters. You need to slow down. As we read through Luke, and what I hope you'll do is every week, as either myself or dad, as we, as we bite off a chunk of Luke and work our way through it, read it. Think about it. Pray about it. Because if you're reading these Bible stories, as many of you have again and again and again, and it's just seems so boring and so rote. It's, 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 and you don't, what you really want, if you really love Christ and you really want to know your scripture, you want to be like my son when, that, when the spaceships show up in Star Wars. Oh, you want to get back to that because in that t- means you need to slow down and read your Bible carefully. For example, if I asked you, the one person in all of Scripture, you really needed to understand well, who would you say? Uh, folks were in church, the answer is always Jesus. There you go. And yet, as I've tried to point out again and again and again, even the church gets Jesus wrong. For example, just when he was walking here on earth, Chris, show him that first one. How many people have seen this portrait? You seen that? You seen that? Right? This is what you were raised to believe Jesus looked like. That is not what Jesus looked like. Jesus did not look like the lead singer of the Marshall Tucker Band in the 1970s. He did not look like a skinny hippie on his way to hot yoga. That is not what he looked like. First of all, I don't know if you can say because it's a little dark up there. No Jew in the first century had blue eyes. Second, none of them had straight hair. And by the way, if you read the Apostle Paul reminds us, what does it say? It was actually shameful for Jewish men to have long hair. He would have short, kinky, curly hair. He would have been olive-skinned, brown eyes. See, When the Bible wants you to know 
about someone's looks. It doesn't. If somebody's good-looking or somebody's kind of odd-looking or whatever, the Bible says it. What does it say about King Saul? Foot taller, head taller than anybody else in Israel. What does it say about David and his kid Absalom? Good-looking. And apparently from what we read, the ladies agreed. What does it say about Jesus' looks? Nothing. Why? Because do you remember when we read through a couple weeks ago Isaiah 53? What did the prophecy of Isaiah 53 say? He had no beauty that we should adore him. In other words, he looked average. Well, about 15 years ago or so, the BBC actually did something worthwhile for once. They went over to Israel, and they were taking Isaiah 53 seriously. And so they took a bunch of skeletons from first century, a bunch of Jewish males from the first century, and they put together a composite about what the average first century Jewish male looked like, which is what Isaiah says Jesus would look like, and here's what they came up with. That. That is closer to what Jesus actually looked like when he walked the earth. As Ralph Clay likes to say, he looks closer to him. And that right, Ralph? <laughs> now, here's the other thing. And by the way, we really need some talented Christian artists to, to rectify this situation. Here's the other thing I see. Every portrait I've seen of Jesus irritates me. I'm, I, I'm kind of glad, just a little bit glad, that Christian bookstores are going out of business because every time I went into one and I saw one of these portraits, I wanted to go all Jesus in the temple in the place. Because it's ridiculous. Every picture of Jesus, he's like 120 pounds soaking wet. I was like, wait a minute. Now, for several years, I was a, I was a fitness trainer. And so... What was, let's begin here, what was Jesus' diet? Baked fish, figs, dates, and almonds. Now, anybody knows anything about nutrition, that's a lot of protein. Now, what we know is that from about the age of 13, 14, up to about the age around 30, Jesus was a manual laborer. I know it says carpenter. Actually, the Greek just means works with hands. It can mean carve stone. It can mean work with wood. But it means he swung a heavy hammer for 17 years. And in all probability, the only place he could find work, he had to walk 10 miles a day to get there. Now, if you're eating a high-protein diet and you're walking 10 miles a day and you're spending 12 hours a day swinging a heavy hammer, you do not look like Richard Simmons. What do we learn from Jesus' temptation in the wilderness? He fasted for 40 days. Now, don't get there and go, yeah, he fasted 40 days. He's Jesus. He's God. He's Superman. No. In every bodily way, he was a human being. He was God and human. As we'll see in Luke next week, he says he grew in wisdom and stature. His body grew. He had a normal body. 40 days, 
out in the wilderness with no food. Now, back when I studied fasting, the church I was at, we, we did a we did a 30-day fast. And I, I, I consulted some doctors, and here's what they told me. They said, well, anybody that is remotely healthy can actually fast for at least 21 days. 21 days you can fast from, from food and be just fine. Now, I, here's what I've had when people have fasted. like, but my head hurts, but I'm lightheaded, but my stomach's grumbling. I'm starving. You're not starving to death. It's just your body saying, hey, we usually get chicken nuggets right now. That's it. Your body's just not used to it. But after 21 days or more, depending on your health, your body begins to kind of feast off the fat of the land. In other words, you do begin to starve to death. And they say at 40 days, that's when things get really dangerous. And only people in incredible physical shape can make it that far. He made it that far. It's not because he was Superman. It was because he was in incredible physical shape. This is the best I could find of a picture of what Jesus kind of looked like. This is on the cross. At least he has some muscle mass there, which he would have had. But we get Jesus wrong. Just, I'm not even talking about theology yet. We don't even get the way he looks right. And that's a problem. If we go into the Bible and we have decided this is what God is, here's what Jesus looks like, Here's what the Bible means. And then you take that prejudice and you read it into the Bible. Guess what? You will only find what you want to find. And that will not challenge you and that will not change you. And the whole point of Scripture is to change you more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you're, when you do that, all you're doing is you are engaging in the sin of idolatry. Idolatry is a sin where you create your own God. It is a God of your own making. And we must at least get Jesus right because Jesus says in John 14, 9, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So if you don't get Jesus right, you don't get God right. And if you don't get either one of those right... You're in trouble. You're in trouble. And we do this. Even the best of us do this. And because we do this, because we don't challenge ourselves, because we go in with our own prejudices, then we find the Bible boring. And there's not that bite, that awe. For example, when I was in uh, law school in upstate New York, I was president of the Christian Legal Society. And so that meant, among other things, that I had to lead Bible studies on Thursday nights. And so we were reading through the Gospel of Matthew. And I got to Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Now, we're going to read through it, and if you've only skimmed this, you don't get it. 
Let's go, Chris. Throw that up there, will you? When the Son of Man comes in His glory, that's the second coming of Christ, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. By the way, angels do not have wings. Angels do not look like babies. In fact, whenever it says the Lord of hosts, hosts of angels, in Hebrew, that means army. Angels are soldiers. He will sit in his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. By the way, you want to be a sheep. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king, that's Jesus, he's the one who judges, will say to those on his right, come. You who are blessed in divine favor with my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Now, hold on. We'll get there. I know you're going, wait. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of these. Now, when he says one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, he's pointing to the other sheep. He's pointing to the fellow Christians. He's saying, you took care of your fellow Christians. Even if you didn't know them, if they were a member of the body of Christ, you welcomed them in. Even if you didn't know them, you went to visit them in prison. Even if you didn't know anything about their character, the fact that you knew they were faithful to me, you fed them when they needed fed that you took care of one another. And what you did for them, you did for me. But then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and the angels. If you think Jesus meek and mild is so nice, this is Jesus saying, you're going to hell. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing. Why does he keep saying me? Because it's the body of Christ. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Does that square with what you think the Bible teaches? Does that square with your vision of God? Does that square with your vision of Jesus? That he's just this skinny little guy with long hair walking around, kind of doing his hippie things, and everybody love each other. That's not what he's doing. The person who judges at the end of days is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ 
who says even to those who call themselves Christians, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, I taught that at Christian Legal Society, and there was a girl I was in law school with. She was a year behind me, and she'd been raised in a Lutheran congregation. Now, I don't know anything about Lutheranism. They got no love for works and law and all that kind of stuff. And I saw her eyes as we were reading through this getting bigger and bigger and bigger, which means either she hadn't read it or she had read it and just skimmed it and didn't remember it, didn't pay attention to it. And she goes, wait a minute. Are you telling me I am saved by works rather than faith? I said, no, that's not what it says. She goes, yes, it is. I just read it. And she was almost in a panic. She was sitting there thinking, well, I'm 23. How many years have I got left? How much good can I do? I said, that's not it. God does not say, you go and care for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to earn anything. He doesn't say, you go take care of your brothers and sisters in Christ to get your salvation. Jesus is saying, you care for your brothers and sisters in Christ because you've already received salvation and all you want to do in any way, shape, or form is look to the God who saved you and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. How can I please you? What can I do? And he says, love each other. Worship me and love each other. And that's, that's what he means. Doing good works doesn't get you to heaven. Doing good works shows you're already going to heaven. Do you know the true Jesus? Do you know your Bible? If you've hit that place where it's just like, ah, I've heard that story, I've heard that story, I've heard that story. I guarantee you, many of you, we just, what we went through, you didn't know that. Slow down. Ask questions. Be ready. As we go through Luke-Acts, you're going to see a lot of things that, that do not fit within your worldview of what you thought Christianity was. But folks, you need to understand something. You do not get to define the faith of Jesus Christ. Only He gets to do that. And may we all, all of us, I pray, come to do that. May we care for each other and love each other so that the world looks at us and says, what? what's happening there? Is it because of your system? Is it because of your leadership? Is it because of your budget? It's like I said, Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Whew, I'm done. Let's quit. Father God, we thank you first and foremost that your son agreed to leave his throne, take on flesh, take on flesh, he became a cell. To grow in a womb, to be born, to be hungry, to be tempted. Every way that we are. To go to the cross, to pay the sacrifice for our sins, for all those who fear him. His blood on the cross covers our sins. For all of us and all of us to save Jesus are unrighteous and have fallen short. That he takes his perfect life and he grants it to us to be judged. May that be at the heart 
of our life at Christmas and all year long so that we are motivated to do two things all the time, worship and love each other. And as we work through your scriptures verse by verse, I pray that you will be with these people and show them these aren't boring stories and they ain't seen nothing yet. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. God go with you. See ya. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.